Gracious God, we know as we stand before you that we fall short, that we are not as we should be. And yet, O oh Lord, we know that that is not the end of the story, that the story belongs to you. That through your power and through your spirit, all things are possible. Through your living word, I pray that you may make us new as you are making all things new. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a tough few weeks, sermon-wise. <laughs> People laughing, of course. As we track through Mark's story of Jesus, last week Jesus was teaching on divorce. The week before, he was talking about being cast on the fires of Gehenna, also known as hell. And the subject of this week's text is money. Possessions, which I guess could be harder or easier for us depending on how much we've got in terms of cash in the bank or stuff in our houses, if we have houses to begin with, of course. This week, Jesus and Co. are out and about again, it says, setting out on a journey. And just as they're leaving, a man runs up to Jesus, and he kneels before Jesus. It's indicating a posture of submission. This guy wants to follow Jesus, to join him and his merry band on their way. Good teacher, says the man kneeling before Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we hear this, we tend to hear something like, what do I got to do to get into heaven? How can I earn my spot when the roll gets called up yonder? But in the Bible, eternal life is more complicated than simply afterlife, what happens when we die. Here, eternal life means life in God's kingdom, that time and that place where God fully reigns and the world is set right eternally and forever. At one point, it was thought to be sometime in the future only. But in Mark's gospel, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it like this. In Mark, because Jesus is here, a whole new world opens up. The age to come is not now simply in the future, though it is that as well, still partly in the future. It is bursting into the present, like a chicken so keen to be born that it's already sticking its beak through the shell ahead of the right time. That's what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God, according to Mark, has touched down in Jesus, peeked its beak out, so to speak. The future has come close in him. So now that Jesus has shown up, this fullness of life, everlasting life, can be experienced in the present moment, in the midst of the here and now, 
and not just way off in the future. This is what the man comes looking to inherit and receive. That fullness of life stuff, he says, how can I get some of that? And in response, Jesus does what is expected of any Jewish teacher of this time, and he points back to the scriptures. You know the commandments, he says, referring to the Ten Commandments God delivers to Moses in the Old Testament. Don't kill anybody. Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't defraud people out of their money. Honor your father and your mother. You know, you could extend that list further and further, the way Ingrid did. It's the usual way of life that, according to the scriptures, God had given to God's people. It's a tall order, and like Ingrid said, it's almost impossible to do. But it's not too tall for this guy, if you pay attention to the text. Teacher, he says to Jesus, I've already kept these since I was a little boy. Check mark, check mark, check mark, check mark, check mark, check mark, check mark. What else you got? I got all these things, yet somehow I don't have this eternal life. This guy's a good guy. He's like a spiritual athlete, you know? He always does the right thing. He's got a spotless commandment-keeping record. But there's one thing he can't do. Jesus, it says... Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. You lack one thing. There's still a check mark that is yet to be checked. But I've got something for the person who has everything. Go sell what you've got. Take that money, give it to the poor. When you do, you'll be trading in all that physical treasure you've got for heavenly treasure, that eternal life, you want so bad, then come and follow me. I mean, I just, I love this scene. I think it's meant to be funny, actually. As soon as the man hears this, it says, he's shocked. And he goes away grieving, for he had many possessions. See, we don't know that he had many possessions until that point. I find that hilarious. This is a good and righteous man. He wants to follow Jesus, willing to do anything to inherit eternal life, everything except give away his possessions and his money. That's his one bridge too far. Jesus knows it. How difficult it is, he tells his disciples, how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's so impossible, it'd be easier to shove a camel through the eye of a needle than it would be for this guy to get his foot into God's kingdom to receive eternal life. Another commentator said, it's like trying to shove Bill Gates through the night deposit slot at the bank. <laughs> this guy is so attached to his wealth and possessions that he can't even bring himself to trade them in for the ultimate priceless treasure Ah, 
Now, my first inclination when I hear a text like this is to revert to my university Marxist days. The old socialist days. Not so old, but you know. I get a sense of glee. I get a sense of self-satisfaction. I look at our world that is stricken with such poverty and need on one hand, and a small group of individuals who hold the most of the world's wealth on the other, and I take comfort, delight in Jesus' word of judgment on the rich. I feel like the early church father Tertullian, who suggested that it is right and good for the righteous saints in heaven to watch joyfully while the wicked are roasted over an eternal flame. Enjoy it while it lasts, my wealthy friends. There's a judgment coming. Woo! Which still may be the case, I don't know. But one thing that struck me this time around is how Jesus comes to his diagnosis of this man's problem. Remember how the man said he'd followed all the commandments? He must have been right. I mean, we have no reason to doubt that he was speaking the truth. It says that Jesus looked at him. Jesus looked at him, he said, it says, and he loved him. That does not sound like me in my old university Marxist days. It doesn't sound much like love, does it, what Jesus says? But in the gospel, Jesus sees people and Jesus knows them. He sees below the surface of their lives. The New Testament scholar Catherine Grebe puts it like this. The loving gaze of Jesus penetrates to the heart. Elsewhere in scripture he is described as the living and active word of God whose gaze, like a scalpel, dissects bone from marrow. The one whose winnowing fork separates the wheat from chaff. His love sees clearly and speaks truthfully. Truthfully. Today we might describe Jesus' word to the rich man as an intervention, she says. Love bold enough to step between an addict and his addiction. First things first. Changing one thing changes everything. Jesus knows the things that below the surface gnaw at people's souls, the things that enslave them. In this case, the man's issue is wealth. Jesus sees him and he knows him, and then like at an intervention, he gives the diagnosis for his soul sickness. Jesus prescribes giving away his possessions to heal him. A harsh but effective medicine. It's kind of like Buckley's cough syrup. It tastes awful, but it works. 
not to destroy him, but to save him from the power of money and possessions in his life, to set his soul in a splint like a broken bone, to heal him and make him new. What you're asking is impossible, say the disciples, to which Jesus replies, impossible for any human, for sure, but with God, all things are possible. So just when I was hoping for a little fire and brimstone, here Jesus comes armed instead with a big syringe full of that amazing grace. One filled to the brim with divine healing power. It's he's able to have faith, to trust Jesus, grit his teeth, roll up his sleeve, and just start giving what he has away. It's a hard diagnosis, I know, and even harsher medicine. But it's the same one Jesus offers us to. Because Jesus sees us too. He sees inside of our souls. He sees past all of our surface issues to the core illnesses that plague us too. And the truth is, he see what the truth he sees is the same. We too are possessed by wealth in one way or another. We live in the richest society in human history, and I'm personally richer materially than this ancient guy in the Bible. And yet, despite the fact that we're so rich, we're just as scared of losing it. Our fear often keeps us from opening our lives and our homes to those in need. Our careers drive our decision-making, often sacrificing family and relationships for economic security. We've got all the time and money for a trip to Starbucks and a thousand other things, but our commitment to generosity often loses out to the cable bill, or in our case, Netflix, to be honest. Cars to maintain, rent and mortgages to pay, addictions and habits to fuel, kids to grow and commitments to keep. I mean, of course, if we finally had enough, we'd be happy, right? Even though none of it's ever actually made us happier. Because ironically, making money, having money, keeping money, and spending money costs us a lot. Even when we don't have any of it. It sets our agendas. It dictates our decisions. Money is very useful, very good for many things, but money also has this kind of spiritual power over our lives. One that often controls us and not the other way around, as we tend to think. It gets between us and following Jesus, and it drives us to terror and anxiety. And to do otherwise seems impossible. But as I said, Jesus sees it all. 
He sees all of our reasons, mine and yours. He sees all of our shortcomings, and he knows just how badly we're caged in. He knows how hard it is to do anything different, even though it all stands in the way of receiving eternal life and experiencing the kingdom of God. He sees all of these things, and yet he tells the truth. But he sees us, and in love, he also tells us that if we're willing to trust, he will lead us in a more excellent way. Generosity is both an inoculation from the power that money has over our lives and an injection of the power of eternal life into our lives. We may not be able to simply give everything we have away. We aren't Jesus, after all. But we can set off in the right direction and on the right path, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because if this is Jesus' intervention, an intervention is never the end. It's always the beginning of a lifelong journey, one that has taken one step at a time, one act of trust, one action of fearless giving at a time. So instead of walking away with your head hung low, what's your first step going to be? Is it going to be an action of confession, of truth-telling, seeing your own life truthfully as Christ sees you, and acknowledging the power that money has in your own life? Seriously. Find somebody you trust after worship and share your struggles with them. Struggles about money, because it's hard. Unburden yourself. Or maybe your first step is going to be a small, literal, take this literally, literal unburdening of stuff. Go through your house, look at some of the useful things you've got but never use, or don't use much, or don't actually need. And don't just dump it at Value Village. That's the easy way. Sell the stuff. Give the money away. Unburden yourself as an act of trust that it will be okay if you do it. Or will your step be an act of generosity? setting aside a percentage, a set amount of your income every week, every month, and simply giving it away for a kingdom purpose. Giving it away for the purpose of good. This is a spiritual discipline followers of Jesus have undertaken in their Jewish ancestors for thousands of years, not to earn love from God or to prove how holy we are, but to remember that all life is a gift from God a gift that only really retains its power when it's given away. Think about your 
first step on the path that Jesus has brought. And friends, do not despair. Let's not despair and leave worship with our heads hung, Charlie Brown style, you know, doo-doo-doo. We call that uh, Bram style, our second youngest in our house, Bram style, Charlie Brown style, it's the same. Because we know we can't do it. We know we can't do it all at one time, and we know we can't do it all on our own. It's impossible, but remember, this is an intervention. It's just the beginning. And Jesus comes with as many interventions as we need over and over again to set us free from everything that enslaves us and to heal what ails our souls. And together, with the promise of grace, the promise of abundant eternal life, the promise of the kingdom, together we can take the risk. Take that one trusting first step forward on the path that Jesus has set for us. It may seem impossible, harder than shoving a camel through the eye of a needle, harder than shoving Bill Gates through that night deposit slot. But as Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. And for that, thanks be to God. Amen.